Praise the Lord. It's a great day to be alive, if you're alive. Today we're going to get into the Word. We're celebrating the resurrection in this particular teaching. We want to go to Luke chapter 24. I'm going to read two verses of Scripture, verse 5 and verse number 6. And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee. He is risen is our subject. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, what a joy it is to be able to look into the scriptures. We are happy that every Lord's Day we have an opportunity to celebrate the resurrection of our Savior. But on the calendar, we're able to do this annually. Lord, even though we know in many places they're unable to do this, we are happy that we can look into the scriptures and talk about this one more time. So, Lord, make yourself real to us through the teaching of your word, because we love you and adore you in Jesus name. Amen. 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 Okay, I I think we can begin by telling you that the life and death of Jesus obviously struck a chord with every reader of the Gospels in ancient times, and certainly it was important in many of the discussions in the first century. And the reason I say that is because all of the Gospel narratives contain some kind of story about not only how he lived, but how he died, and also how he was raised from the dead. So powerful was the life that this man Jesus lived that it even affected people when he died. We know a lot of people turned to follow him while he was living, but we have one character at the end of chapter 23 by the name of Joseph that I think is quite quite interesting. Now, we don't have a lot of info about him, but the little bit we do have I think is important in chapter 23 of Luke, verse 50. There was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man. Look at those look at those adjectives and look at that description there. The same had not consented to the counsel and deed of them. That, that's of those that decided he needed to be crucified. He was of Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate, begged the body of Jesus, took it down, wrapped it in a linen, laid it in the sepulcher that was hewn in stone, wherein never a man laid. So there are three things important we can learn about Joseph. Number one, he was not someone who was in agreement with the trials of Christ and the result of what happened in those trials. Jesus endured six painful judicial proceedings that night, and he was embarrassed, he was shamed, he was beaten, he was bludgeoned, They pressed a thorny crown upon his brow and the blood ran down his face. There's no way to really adequately portray it accurately in the English language without it being a very heart-rending thing. But I can tell you one thing, it left a terrible memory for all of those that had to be there to see how their Savior died. This man, Joseph, was one of the followers of the Lord that said he was not in agreement with them. But it also said he was somebody waiting for the kingdom of God. So as a Jewish man, he was familiar with the ancient Jewish teachings regarding 
the reign of God in the earth. He was looking for the Messiah to come and certainly had an expectation that deliverance would come to the Jewish people. He had no idea that Jesus would provide the kind of deliverance that he had sought. And he had no idea that Jesus would have the living water that his inward parts thirsted for. He wasn't satisfied in life until he found Christ Jesus as his Savior, which is the same thing for, for all of us. We may have tried a lot of different things. We may have dabbled in different religions, different beliefs, no religion at all. But it wasn't until Jesus came into our life that we found some sense of direction. And then the third thing, it tells us he's the one that removed Jesus from the cross. Nicodemus was a secret follower of the Lord. Then he later publicized his belief after Jesus was crucified. Here we have this situation with Joseph, and I can't help but imagine this scene when I, I think about the handling of the dead. Now, people do this all the time. There have been plenty, there are plenty of people who uh, are morticians in the earth. They've been professionally trained. They've got all kinds of helpers. Only a handful of times in my life have I ever had to be involved with the caretaking of the dead. But I do recall one occasion when I was living in Amman, Jordan, and staying with an Arabic family, and we were sitting out on the front porch, and the gentleman who was the grandfather in the home, his name was Jalil. And we were all sitting out there talking. Jalil said he was going to go in the back room and he was going to, to sew uh, some pants that he had somewhere around the belt loops. And so he went in there. And after about, oh, I say it couldn't have been more than three or four minutes, we heard a thud, like something hitting the floor. Well, we, we went in there and he hit the ground. And by the time we got in there, he was dead. And then, of course, the, the wailing begins. And the men, we, we had to take the body put the body on the bed, and then while the oldest sons and grandsons went downstairs in the backyard, they started building a, a, a coffin, a casket for this grandfather. While they were doing that, other family members were contacting relatives, and here we were undressing him, and I was watching as these Arab Christian men were showing me and teaching me how they prepare a body for burial. And that was the, the, the first time I ever had to really be involved with the caretaking of the dead. Now, imagine Joseph then as someone who is removing the body of Jesus from the cross. Now, you know as well as I do, the scripture teaches that he had nails in his hands. He had nails in his feet. And that means that there had to be some pretty thick nails and some pretty long nails in order to be able to hold him up on that cross. And also, let's not forget, if you've ever had a hammer and had to remove nails out of wood or out of something, then you know they had to do the same thing in pulling those nails out of our Savior. Now that countenance that once had smiled, that facial, uh, facial expression that they had seen so many times in the morning, afternoon, evening, it's, it's, it's blank now. There's nothing there. There's no life at all, and they have to prepare it according to Jewish ritual. They've got to wipe the blood from his brow. So imagine Joseph doing that with some kind of a cloth, trying to clean up his Savior's body, seeing his Savior in a manner that no man would ever want to be seen. But this is what he did because he was so interested 
and preserving his savior from the hands of Roman pagan soldiers and heathen Jewish leaders that despised him. The little that we have of Joseph still gives us a significant amount of information that shows that even in death, we can be a blessing to people. So in chapter 24, verse 1, it tells us early in the morning, the ladies made their way to the sepulcher. Now, these ladies did not return to Galilee as some other people did. Once Jesus died and was placed in the tomb, they did not say the jig is up, we're depressed, and we're no longer going to hang around here. They stayed right there in Jerusalem for a few more days. Now, that's important. Very often, when a religious leader of a movement passes away, a lot of times the whole movement becomes fragmented, and then people are scattered, and within a period of time, you don't even find people that even adhere to those teachings anymore. Consider the, the beliefs of the ancient Greeks and Romans. I, I've been to Greece. I've been over to Italy. I, I've never met anybody that still worships the pantheon of gods that these folks were involved with, even though there were a lot of teachers. Let's not forget, at one time, Mr. Jim Jones had hundreds of followers, hundreds of followers, but, but you, you'd be hard-pressed to find, find two today that honestly believe that man was of God. And, and when you consider the, the, the gentleman, Mr. Koresh, who was down there at Waco, it's my understanding they still have a little church down there somewhere with a handful of people that get together. Well, here he had hundreds before, but the thing dwindled down, because once you come to realize that that teacher is in all that he proclaims, then things begin to fall apart. We've seen it in the 50s, in the 60s, in the 70s, with everybody from Father Divine to Sweet Daddy Grace back on the East Coast. So many false prophets and false teachers created movements with thousands and thousands of people. But Jesus comes along, he takes 12. He takes 12 from the midst of hundreds of disciples. He appoints them to be apostles. They then transmit that teaching unto their disciples, and here we are 2,000 years later, and there are people all over the planet still having their blood shed because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here are ladies who did not turn and run, but even in their despair, they stayed right there in Jerusalem, and here they are on the first day of the week, and they're bringing spices that they have prepared. Do you think they slept at all that night? I don't think they did. I don't think they slept the second night. I don't think they slept the night before Christ was raised from the dead at all. But yet the scripture tells us, though, that they were very eager to ensure that he received a proper burial and a proper anointing in his burial, even though he never received a proper death. See, they never treated him the way he should have been treated. Nevertheless, he had ladies that were there that ministered to him. Uh, ladies have been there, uh, part of Jesus' ministry all throughout the Gospels. When he was born, Anna the prophetess ran throughout Jerusalem telling people about the Savior that had come. According to Luke chapter 8, verse number 3, the women ministered to Jesus out of their substance as he traveled and preached the Gospel. According to Luke, when Jesus was bearing that cross, the women followed behind him, crying and weeping. He said, don't cry for me. You ought to be crying for yourselves. And then at the resurrection, 
Here again, the ladies one more time are here and the ladies are going to be the first ones to proclaim he's alive again. The stone has been rolled away. So in verse number two, then it tells us that they found the stone rolled away. That, that means this happened during the night and this certainly is not how it was when they left the sepulcher. If you go back to chapter 23 and look at verse 55, it says, The women also which came with him from Galilee followed after and beheld the sepulcher and how his body was laid. So when they last were at the tomb, it was closed. There was a stone there. Jesus was dead. They have now returned, and you can see here, the stone was rolled away. And we always like to emphasize the angel did not roll away the stone to let Jesus out of the tomb. He rolled away the stone to let the witnesses in the tomb so that they could see that he was no longer there. They would have evidence that that tomb was absolutely empty. And this is very important because God didn't want the story to end with the crucifixion. It had to continue with the resurrection and even move right on to the point of the ascension. Now, there are people today who do not want the message of the resurrection included in gospel teaching. They'd rather see it excluded altogether. They, they, they like to teach about Jesus being a good, a good philosopher. And he was a very, a very ethical man. And, and he taught us a lot of principles and truths about how to live a good life. But, but this whole idea that he died on the cross as the Lamb of God and he bore somebody's sin, that, that whole thing is hogwash, they would say. They say no one can die in somebody else's, in someone else's place. And so this, this is something that the enemy has tried to bring into the church. And he has made great gains in the lives of a lot of different denominations. Nevertheless, this is what we're supposed to tell them. And regardless of what people say, we come back to verse two to that little phrase that says the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. It was rolled away. You say, well, pastor, uh, somebody was talking to me here not too long ago, and they said to me, they read a book, and, and this scholar, who, who's got a lot of, lot of letters behind his name, he said that, that anybody can make up an idea like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did, and that there were a lot of resurrection stories amongst the different gods in the first century and even before that. And so we, we can't really expect that this occurred in Jesus' life and ministry. So what do you say to that? I say to that, the stone was rolled away. That's what I say. So whenever someone comes to me and they say, well, I, I think we are beyond the first century belief in those kinds of superstitions. And I just think that as 21st century minded people, you know, we go to college now, we do have, have air conditioners in our house. We've got ice boxes and refrigerators and things like that. Surely we're beyond the idea that someone could have a devil and someone would literally die and then come back. To, to, to life again. What do you say to that, Pastor there? I say the stone was rolled away. Now they were there. And if I have to choose between eyewitnesses of the Lord's presence and his glory and some backslidden pagan apostate man or woman that thinks they know the Bible, then I'm going to choose the eyewitness. They said the stone was rolled away. So their perplexity, I believe, 
was matched only by their surprise at the presence of the angels. Notice that in verse 4. Two men stood by them in shining garments. Folks, everything about Jesus' life and, and his career and the narrative about him from birth to ascension is supernatural. If, if you pull the thread out of the, the, the supernatural garment of Christ, there's nothing left. Because from his conception in Mary's womb to his ascension up into the clouds where he was taken away, everything is divine and supernatural. God became a man in order to demonstrate to us what he could do in the life of a human being that walked with him and yielded to him. So the angels were there. But then also the important question was, was asked to them in verse number five, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Very important question. Why do you look for the living among the dead? I know of no one who goes to a cemetery today who goes into a mausoleum looking for somebody that once was dead and has now been raised up. I don't know of anybody that does that. Everybody that I know of who attend funerals have every expectation that when the preacher or undertaker says ashes to ashes, dust to dust, that's the end of it. Somebody's going to sit there and watch the people take the casket and they're going to put it on that little that little platform they have they're going to lower it in the ground some people actually sit there long enough to watch the dirt diggers as they begin to throw the dirt on top of the casket they don't want to go away i don't think i've ever met anybody that has gone to a cemetery expecting grandma to be sitting on top of that tombstone when they got there the point that the angel is trying to make is that you're looking for someone who is alive here in a place where you will only find individuals that are dead, and I'm telling you, he's no longer deceased. Jesus is alive again. The stone's been rolled away. Jesus is alive again. He's no longer in the grave. So when we ask the question in a different way, and we say something like, what is the meaning of the term revival? This is what we're talking about. Something that had been alive, then something happened and it died. It, it ceased to live in the former form in which it once existed. This is what the Lord was saying to the church at Ephesus when he said, look, I think you folks need to get your act together because you have left your first love. So you, you loved me, past tense, but now you don't love me, present tense. So there has to be a change. And as I study the scripture, when I look at Adam and Eve placed in the garden, I realize death did not come into this world until they transgressed the commandment of God. That means that you can not have death without the presence of sin. It doesn't matter what church it is, what ministry it is. If it dies, sin is somewhere there. Satan cannot kill a church. That church has to commit suicide. It has to commit suicide because a church that proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ and is founded on the word of God, it is possessed of an indestructible life. And even if there are only two or three people that love God, Jesus said, I'm in the middle of it. I'm in the middle of it. So sin brings about death. That's why Jesus died, not because of his sin, but because of mine and because of yours. And if we want to see revival in a church, then we have to deal with that sin issue. I can give you a whole lot of illustrations about this, but I'll start with this one. Uh, Tiffany and I were, were asked to come in and, and, and hold some, some meetings in the church in which she was raised. Uh, 
Missionary Baptist Church down in Mississippi. And, and they wanted me to come preach a whole week of, of meetings. And so we, we, we consented and we went on down there and, and we started holding these meetings. Oh, it was powerful. But we, we got there. And as I typically do, whenever I have to go into a church, I want to get the keys and go early during the day, lay in the altar, pray and fast and ask God, what do you want me to say to these people? What's the key to a revival here? What, what's the key? Who's the key person that you can work on and bring to a saving knowledge? Because typically every village, every town is one person away from a move of God. You, you, you get some, some grandkid saved, and you'll usually get a family saved. You, you get some, some, some little teenager that's turned on to God, and then oftentimes you'll get mom and dad and sometimes the grandparents also. Somebody gets healed, then a lot of other people want to show up and see what in the world is, is going on. So just all kinds of things can happen. So I'm laying in that altar, and I'm praying, God, what do you want me to say? Well, night after night, he was giving me those messages. I'm telling one night, folks, oh, my God, he, goodness, he opened up the trap door in heaven and poured glory down into that church. Just filled the place. It was amazing just to see what, what God did. Folks came down, gave their hearts to the Lord, one person after another. I could tell you the story, but, but what, what happened in the, in the altar service just kind of staggered everybody in a Baptist church. Now, they would have been expecting this in a Pentecostal church or charismatic church but not in the Baptist church. So here, here we had these people we're praying for, and, and these girls, just before I could ever even get my hand on, they just fell out on the floor, and they're down there shaking, and they're writhing, and they're screaming, and I'm standing over, and I'm saying, in the name of Jesus, come out of them. In the name of Jesus, come out of them. Well, when they finally got up and had gotten right with the king, started repenting. People started hugging and embracing each other. They were weeping. They were crying. They were apologizing to older people in that church. I sat down on one of those pews next to my father-in-law, and we sat there till about 1130 at night listening to people as they were repenting and giving testimony of how they got caught up in sin. Now, here was a church where the web of lesbianism had came into that church. Somebody allowed a lady, a young lady, to come and dwell in their house because she didn't have anywhere else to live. They brought her in. And before you know it, that young lady had introduced lesbianism to one of the daughters in that family that was housing her. And before you know it, the two of them then began to spread that around in the church. And folks, I'm telling you, when I got there, that web was so intricate and it was in so many different places that just the preaching of the word broke it up and people began to weep and cry and wail. And 11 o'clock at night, they're still standing up there testifying at that microphone. My father-in-law sitting there looking at me, he's not even a Christian. He'd never seen anything like this in his life. But that church had a move of God. The very next night, we were able to have communion in that church. Hadn't been taken in a very long time because of sin. But God had so brought a cleansing to that place that he could move and minister in that pastor and in those different people. The preacher couldn't even preach like he wanted to each week because sin was so entrenched. They didn't like him. He didn't like them. 
but because we came with a word from God, it brought revival. So this is what we're saying. Sin comes, it suppresses the life of God. You remove the sin, the life of God springs forth. That's exactly what happened, happened then. So the question, why seek ye the living among the dead, is very important because you're not going to find a living Savior in a place that's dead. If you have a preacher that doesn't believe the Bible, that's a matter of sin. If you have people in the church that disbelieve the truths of Scripture, that's a matter of sin. You can't have revival in a place where people reject the truth of God's word. Someone has to be sensitive to the move of God and yield to the Holy Spirit. Now, I know the angel made a very dogmatic statement in verse number six. He said he is not here, but is risen. That's, that's dogmatic. That's truth. That's what we have to tell people, whether people believe it or not. That's all there is to it. Stick with the angelic verbiage. Stay with what the text says. Don't allow your mind to be twisted by the thoughts of people who disbelieve the scripture. I can tell you the National Geographic, CNN, and the History Channel, and everybody else are going to have all kinds of people doing documentaries and giving stories about what the resurrection meant in ancient times and what it means amongst those folks that go to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Brown, wherever else they may go and teach. But I'm telling you, you need to come back to the school of the scripture and see where the text says he is not here, but he's risen. That's the key. He's risen. Stay with that. Don't move away from the simplicity of Christ. So the, the threefold prophecy that Jesus gave is important because he said, I have to be delivered unto to these folks who are going to kill me. But he said, before that happens, I'm going to be betrayed. But he said, I also want you to know I'm going to rise from, from the dead. Now, something else that I want to quickly mention in verse 11, the, the apostles heard about this and, and it says their words seem to them as idle tales and they believe them not. Now, this happens often as a, as a minister. When I'm preaching to people and I'm looking at faces as I'm teaching. I can tell sometimes by the countenance of folks that are looking at me whether or not truth is getting in. Because for people who've never heard it or are just coming to believe it, a lot of times their eyes will start dazzling like, like for the first time the sun is bursting over the horizon. I, I understand now. It's making sense now. And, and when that's happening, you can see that in people's face. But you can also tell... When someone has already shut you down, they, 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 they fold their arms sometimes and they may cross their legs and they just look at you and have this smug uh, countenance and, and they don't care anything about what you say. And you can tell by, by the way they're acting that the more you talk, the angrier they get. And, and I've seen that happen also because there are people in this world that, that are so full of unbelief, as Paul says, that that these words to them just seem like tales. There are many people that say to you, those are old legends. Why, why even bother with the Bible? I mean, after all, we, we've got other things we can, we can read today. Why in the world would you even pick up a Bible in the year 2020 and expect it to have any kind of news that would be useful for you today? Well, it's because of what the angel said. He is not here, but he is risen. 
And we know that he, Jesus, has given us all kinds of insight for living in the time frame in which we're alive right now. So Jesus is raised from the dead. You can see from verses 30, verses 13, coming all the way down to 33, 34, that there are two disciples walking along the road. Jesus comes and speaks to them. He asks them a question. Why are you troubled? And they said, what, what in the world are you, you, you talking about? He, he said, well, what happened? They said, well, where in the world have you been? Hiding under a rock or something? What do you mean? What, what has happened? Jesus of Nazareth was crucified the other day. And, and now the ladies are running around telling everybody he's alive. How, how can you ask what, what is going on? With, with all of us. And that's when Jesus had to make it very plain to them in verse number 25. You folks are fools. What is a fool? Psalm 14, I believe it is, says the fool that's said in his heart, there is no God. So he said, you're acting like people don't even believe. He said, you're, you're slow of heart to believe everything the prophets said. And he said, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory. So verses 27, 28, he begins to explain to them who he is in light of the Old Testament verses. Now, now this is a very important point as I understand the teaching of Scripture. If you're preaching or ministering from the Psalms or from the law, somehow or another you should be able to tie this to Jesus. If, if you're ministering from the Psalms or witnessing about the Psalms and sitting in front of you is a Protestant pastor, a, a rabbi and an imam from the mosque, nearest mosque in some city close by you. If, if all three of them can sit there and say amen to what you're saying at the beginning of your message, in the middle of your witness and at the end of your witness, then you have not presented that text the way it's supposed to be presented. Somehow or another, you've got to be able to tie what Moses taught and the Psalms and the prophets to Jesus' person and redemptive work. And by doing so, we clearly present to all the world who Jesus Christ is. And that's when he made it very plain to, to those good folks, you need to have a good, have a good look at me and, and realize that I'm, I'm the one that, that, that was crucified, but now I've been raised from the dead. You can see that. There in verse 38, he asked him, why are you troubled? Verse 39, he said, take a look at my hands and my feet. See, he's talking to the 10 now, talking to those disciples. Take a look at my hands and my feet. Touch me if you want. Spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. And that is when they realized that, that something truly did happen in that tomb. Now we know what happened because Romans chapter 1 says, God raised Jesus from the dead by the Spirit. So the Holy Ghost came into that tomb, raised him up. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, the triune Godhead involved with the resurrection. He's alive again regardless of what anybody says. And I don't think we should ever, ever doubt that. When he came up out of the grave, he made it possible for us also to know that we too are going to be raised again in his likeness. The way you see me right now, folks, this isn't the end. I'm going to get a brand new body. You better believe it. And that brand new body I get, I guarantee won't be no white hairs in that beard at all. There won't be any white hairs. And, and, for, and for folks who don't have any hair, they're going to have a full head of hair. And, and for people that dye their hair, they're not going to have to worry about that anymore at all. God's going to give us a brand new body. Everything's going to be totally changed because the scripture says the seed goes into the ground and then it comes out. 
And Jesus was the first fruits of many that would be resurrected. Matthew 27 says, when Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead, many people came out of the grave and walked back into Jerusalem when he was raised from the dead. So I think if we hold fast to the teaching that he is risen, we will not be easily deceived if we walk with God. In Jesus' name, let's have a word of prayer. Oh God, we thank you for loving us as you do. Let this teaching be a blessing to many people. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen.